We are going to get back into our Bible study. We have been studying in the book of Numbers. We will get into that shortly. If you were with us last week, last week we saw a fairly well-known story in the Bible. If you're a Bible reader, you'll be familiar with the story. We talked about a man by the name of Korah in Numbers chapter 16, and Korah rebelled with a bunch of others. They, he rebelled against Moses, he re- rebelled against Aaron, and well, most importantly, he rebelled against God, and he and about 250 other people were judged in a very unique way when God opened up the earth, swallowed them alive, and they went alive straight down to the pit of hell, and the earth shut again over them. And uh, I think it's fair to say when you read a story like that, that, well, for those guys, that was a bad move. <laughs> they, they probably shouldn't have done that. I mean, I don't know. They were, let, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that before this event happened, that those guys were, they were good guys. I mean, at least we know that they were respected enough to be called princes in Israel. They were leaders. They were respected among their peers in their lives. And I just like to consider today, for example, after that event happened, what do you think the people said about them after that? I mean, they might have been respected. They might have been leaders. They might have been heads of their households and tribes. But after that event, after witnessing that thing, you know how people are. What do you suppose they said about them then? Would you think that it's fair that maybe some people said, and they might not have used this terminology, but we use this terminology. Do you think that maybe some people said, well, they blew their testimony? I mean, what does that even mean? We're going to talk about testimony today. What, what is a testimony? Well, we frequently use it to mean our reputation. He blew his reputation. He blew his good name, in other words. You blew your testimony. And in the context of our reputation, well, our reputation in that context is what others say about us, right? It's the, it's the witness of others about us. Now, with that in mind, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever stopped for a minute just to think about God's testimony? I mean, what is that? What is God's testimony besides the title for today's message? What is God's testimony? And could God ever blow his testimony? Well, not in the context of sin and still be God, most certainly. But I would say that God is pretty interested in his reputation, wouldn't you? I mean, I would say that he's interested in, in you knowing that his good name stands. In fact, a lot of what's said about him, a lot of the things that he does throughout the scriptures, he does in defense of his good name. In fact, it says in a couple of places, for example, in Psalm 106, 7 and 8, Our fathers understood not, (coughs) excuse me, thy wonders in Egypt. They remember not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, He saved them, why? For his name's sake. That he might make his mighty power to be known. He wanted people to understand 
and to know him for who he really was to preserve his reputation. Psalm 23, famous psalm, verse number 3, He restoreth my soul, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness, not just for our sakes, but for his name's sake. God leads us, y'all, in paths of righteousness because we as his children represent him, and when we blow it, it's a spot on his name, isn't it? This word testimony in a court of law, well, it's something different. It's your witness. You give your testimony. It's what you have to say about something. Well, a lot of you already know. You know what God magnifies above even his name, don't you? Psalm 138, verse 2, he magnifies his word above his very name. So you could say that God's testimony, in a sense, is God's word. They're used synonymously in Psalm 19 and verse number 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. There's a colon. The sentence continues, giving further clarity. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, that great chapter in the middle of your Bible that talks about man's love for the word of God. In verse 24, for example, thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For thy testimonies are my meditation. And 23 separate times in that Psalm 119, testimonies is used interchangeably for the Word of God. So, in a sense... God's reputation is his testimony. It's determined by what he says. So that's what you could say. In your notes, I put it this way. God is known by what he says. God is known by what he says, by what he testifies. Of course he is. How else could he possibly be known? I mean, if he didn't tell us about himself, think about it. We would have no clue. I mean, we can't see him. We can't touch him. We know what we know about the Lord because he spoke to us. That's why he testified. And that shouldn't surprise us because, well, we also are known by our words that are spoken. And Jesus reminds us of that in Matthew 12, 37, For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. In other words, you're going to be known by the things you talk about. By the things you talk about. Now we are studying in the book of Numbers, and Numbers is the story of Israel in the wilderness, and they're led about from day to day by the Lord, by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. They camped around this tent called the tabernacle, and in the recent chapters that we've been studying, from chapter 12, really, coming through 16, we find Israel's complaining a lot. And today is a continuation in chapter 17 of the story that I described at the beginning in chapter 16, this rebellion of Korah and the others. But in chapter 17, I want us to look at it with a little bit of a different angle, specifically towards God's testimony. 
It's actually a very interesting subject. The Bible actually has a lot to say about it, and we're going to see it in two specific ways. Before we do that, let's just pray. So, Heavenly Father, we are here before you today, and, and Lord, let your name be magnified among us. May your testimony shine as bright as the sun, and may we see you for who you are and, and honor and revere you for who you are. We sang those words to you earlier. Now we will hear them from your holy word, and I pray that you would take it, that you would teach us, that we would see you today. Not just hear words, not just learn a lesson, that we would see you, that we would understand, and as a result that we would be changed. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to see, number one, the testimony of the ark. The testimony of the ark. Now, the, we're talking about the ark of the covenant. We're talking about that piece of furniture that was inside the tabernacle. The ark literally is a wooden box. It's overlaid with gold, and it had the mercy seat on top of it. It's located in the, the most inner compartment called the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle behind the veil. The ark is the place where God himself would come down and communicate with the high priest. And as a result of understanding the significance of this item, the ark, we specifically can say, and this is in your notes, the ark represented the presence of God. To Israel in the wilderness, the ark represented the very presence of God. Therefore, anything that went before the ark, well, it went before the very presence of God. That's why the high priest and the priest that ministered in the office, but specifically the high priest all through the book of Leviticus, had all of those ritual things they had to do and all of the cleansings and all of the dressing and all of the ornaments and all of the things that they had to do to make sure that they were pure and clean and holy and separated from sin. And they went through all of the sacrifices to cleanse themselves and for the people. And if they didn't do all that right, when they stepped behind that veil in the very presence of God, they would be, they would, they would be killed. They wouldn't be able to stand there. The ark is different from all of the other vessels of the tabernacle. The brazen altar, the, the brass laver, the candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, because they all represent things that God did, but not the ark. The ark represented who God is. So the ark itself, in a sense, was God's testimony. It was God's testimony. It was the thing that represented God himself among the people. But the thing that made that particular box special was what went inside it. The testimony was actually the thing that was placed inside the ark. In Exodus 25 and verse 16, the Lord tells Moses, and thou shalt put notice into the ark, what? The testimony which I shall give thee. So whatever it is that God gave them to put inside the ark was what God wanted to testify to Israel. 
And so, very frequently throughout the Old Testament, it's referred to with the title, the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Testimony. And we see that a few verses later in Exodus 25, starting in verse 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee, verse 22, and there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon what? The ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now there were three things specifically that were put into the ark, and we're going to look at those things today. And we find them listed most succinctly in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, where it says, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein, in the Ark of the Covenant, wherein was, three things, the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Those three things represent three critically important testimonies of God to his people. It's as if God is telling Israel, hey y'all, y'all need to preserve these three things in this very special place because these are three things I want you never to forget. I want you to have in front of you all the time. And so the first one we're going to look at, letter A, is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. This comes from Numbers chapter 17. This is represented by Aaron's rod that budded. This is that very story. Now, before we get into that, let me just help you define the term sovereign. The term sovereign actually doesn't appear in your Bible, but the idea certainly does. A sovereign, for example, if it's used as a noun, is a supreme ruler. He's one who's superior to all the others. As in a monarchy, he would be the first magistrate in all of the nation. The idea of sovereign refers to authority. And that ultimately is God's, that is God's interest. That is God's theme for his entire book. You need to understand that this term sovereignty is often wrongly used by Calvinists to mean to predestine or predetermine every act and movement of all life. They, they use it synonymously, sovereignty, with the idea that there's not a molecule that vibrates with God, without God's sovereign control over every vibrational movement. But God's sovereignty is not defined that way. God's sovereignty is actually bigger than that. He's sovereign over all, even while giving us free will to choose. You see, sovereignty does not have to predetermine everything. It just rules over everything. And we're going to see that represented in this story. In the case of Numbers chapter 17, which flows directly from and with the context of Numbers 16, that rebellion of Korah desiring the priesthood, and after God judged Korah and the rebellion, by extension, challenging God's very delegated authority, we saw at the end of the message last week that after the earth opened up and swallowed them and closed back up and the people feared lest they be sucked into that, yet still, the rest of the people still accused Moses of doing that. Back in verse number 41, 
of chapter number 16. We're in 41 of chapter 16. It says, But on the morrow all the congregation, the children of Israel, murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. So the Lord is really getting frustrated here. They've been complaining for a long time. They never seem to be able to get it. He's tired of all the complaining all the way back from chapter 12, 13, 14, coming all the way through. He's sick of the murmuring, and he wants to put it to an end once and for all. So he commands Moses to carry out this one event that we see in chapter 17 in the sight of all Israel to finally to put this issue to rest. By the way, God didn't have to predetermine the sin of Korah, something which made God mad, by the way, but he's still sovereign and can rule over all his people even with their poor choices. So in chapter 17, he sets up a test, fair and square. He sets up a test so that all the tribes can get their chance. And we're going to pick it up in verse number 2. Lord speaking to Moses, he says, Speak unto the children of Israel and take of every one of them a rod according to the house of their fathers. Of all their princes according to the house of their fathers, twelve rods. Write thou every man's name upon his rod, and thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, for one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. And thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation, where? Before the testimony, where I will meet with you. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod, whom I shall choose, shall blossom. And I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. Now, in man's governmental setup, we typically prefer a democracy, right? We love a democracy. We want everybody to get a vote. We want everybody to have a say. And that's kind of what Korah had in his mind. But God's system of government, sorry to tell you, is not a democracy. God's system of government is called a theocracy, which literally is just a monarchy with God ruling from the throne. That's God's system of government. And so God's command, right, he commanded this test to be carried out so that he could testify this thing that God has the right to choose whatever he wants. That's what he wanted to testify, so that God has the right to choose whatever he wants. Psalms 115 and verse number 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Who's going to make him do anything? He does whatever he wants. And God shows that he has chosen Aaron. We continue in this story, and we go down, they start to carry out this procedure, and they get down to verse number 8, and it says, And it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed, blossoms and yielded almonds. So Aaron is the one that was chosen, and they know that it was Aaron was chosen by God because he puts on display another miracle causing a dead stick to grow buds and blossoms and fruit, almonds. I mean, how could Moses pull that off on his own? It was supernatural, showing that it was God himself that was doing it. But why did he do it? Well, his purpose is specifically stated in verse number 5 that we just read. 
and I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel. Think about that. This item, Aaron's rod that budded, was specifically done so that the children of Israel would always remember and never forget, stop your belly aching. I am running the show here. I got this. Stick it in the ark and don't ever forget about it. But I want you to understand something. Because God's testimony to Israel shows mercy to keep them from further judgment. We continue on in verse number 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels, like we just described, and thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me. Why? That they die not. God says, look, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to give you a token. I'm going to give you something to keep, something to refer to, something to look and remember by, so that you don't keep repeating these problems, not just because it bothers me, but because the more you do it, the more I'm required to judge you. And so you don't have to suffer more judgment. I'm going to give you this gift. I'm going to be merciful to you. Listen, stop complaining against God's mediator. That'll be the end of you, that's for sure. So God's testimony is not only I'm in charge, it's also I'm good to you. I'm good to you. Yes, he's a monarch. Yes, he's authoritarian ruling over his kingdom, but he's a, he's a benevolent monarch. He's a loving monarch. God's saying, don't forget, I'm in charge of everything. Just learn to roll with that. And we saw last week, and if you weren't here, you can go back and listen, but these challenges of our life and these things that rub us the wrong way and cause us to have to interact with them, dealing with these problems, well, it's a, it's a necessary step of our growth and development and maturity in Jesus Christ. And so it's as if the Lord is saying, here, take Aaron's rod that budded, stick it in the ark, and remember these lessons. And maybe in a way he's saying, grow up. Grow up. That's the first lesson. That's the first testimony. The second one, letter B, God's supply. God's supply. For this, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 16 and start in verse 32. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commandeth, fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony, capital T, to be kept. And the children of Israel did eat manna forty years until they came into a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came into the borders of the land of Canaan. Now you all know the story of manna. You know that manna is that bread that rained down every day from heaven. Another miracle. Another supernatural event that nobody could have possibly pulled off. God miraculously provided food in the middle of the Arabian desert every day to supply and sustain his people. He took care of them in a way that nobody else possibly could. And so a pot of manna was to be kept in the ark 
to be laid up before the testimony. Why? Why? What was it that it was supposed to represent to Israel? Well, in this case, God's testimony to Israel shows grace to provide daily sustenance. Grace is a gift, right? You know the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy is God not giving you the judgment you deserve, but grace is God giving you good things you don't deserve. And that's what the manna is. It's just a good gift. We've said this many times. We'll keep saying it. God brought Israel out of Egypt to bring them into Canaan. But in the middle was the desert. In the middle was the wilderness. And to get them from here to there, well, that was going to take some time. So God had to feed them along the way, of course. And he did every single day without fail, regardless of their obedience. You never read one time in all the scriptures where it says, and the children of Israel rebelled and God sent them home without their dinner. God didn't give them manna the next day because they weren't, you never read that in all the Bible. God is good, God is gracious, God is merciful, God supplies. And a pot of manna is put in the ark to remember that very thing. Verse 35, we read, it says, The children of Israel did eat manna forty years. Until they came to a land inhabited, they did eat manna until they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan. God said, I'm bringing you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you into Canaan. You know what that pot of manna represents also? Listen, this idea is that God keeps his promises. He's going to supply. And, oh, and by the way, God continues to do that today. You didn't forget that, right? Paul said it in Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, teenagers, I hate to break it to you, but all your need does not include an iPhone 11. All your need is defined by what the Bible says all your need is, and your need is defined in 1 Timothy 6, 8, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. David in the Psalms said this, Psalm 37, 25, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Not the righteous, not my children. They're not going to be begging bread because I supply. I take care of them. I give them good gifts. I provide for them until the very end. And we need to be reminded of that. Don't doubt the Lord just because the times are tough, just because you're in the wilderness, just because it's hot, just because you're sweaty, just because you're tired. Just because life is so heavy, because your feet are burning walking on that sand. Don't doubt God's endless supply. That's something he wanted him to remember. Let's look at the third thing that went in the ark. Letter C, God's standard. God's standard. We're going to see this in Deuteronomy chapter number 10. This is represented by the tables of the covenant. Deuteronomy 10. At that time the Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. 
and I will write upon the tables of the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood, and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and went up into the mount, having the two tables in mine hand. And he wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them unto me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark which I had made, and there they be as the Lord commanded me. So, the Ten Commandments, the big ten, the Ten Commandments are God's standard for morality. It is the moral law. The law of God includes also other ceremonial parts, but the moral law is defined in ten clear, simple statements. Have no other gods. Have no idols, no graven images. Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Don't kill. <laughs> Don't commit adultery. Don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet, don't lust. It's God's standard for conduct. It's how he wants us to behave. And these ten statements are God's testimony. It's God's testimony to Israel. In fact, they are called in Exodus 31, 18... The two tables of testimony. They're called the two tables of testimony. Written with the finger of God. I want you to notice something about these. God preserved his word in the ark for Israel. He preserved the pot of manna, which otherwise would breed worms and rot the very next day. He preserved it in the, in the ark forever. The, the rod that eventually would have wilted and, and died again, he preserved it in the ark forever. And he put these tables in the ark. He preserved his written word in the ark for Israel. It was his written word, written by the very finger of God. God himself wrote the Ten Commandments. Yet, y'all ready? Everybody looking at me? Y'all ready? It's weird having everybody look at you, by the way. <laughs> Did you notice when we read in Deuteronomy chapter 10? It wasn't the originals. Did you notice it was a copy? Did you notice that? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse number 2, it says, Hew out two more tables, and I'll write them again, because the first set, you broke them. Remember? Remember the story back in Exodus 32 when Moses is coming down off the mountain and Aaron had led the people to an idolatrous pagan worship service and they all pitched in their gold and jewelry and they melted it down and Gave the ridiculous excuse. How did this happen? I don't know. We just melted the gold and out popped this calf. And they had this golden calf. And this is the God that took you out of Egypt. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. And Moses was so cheesed at the whole thing. He took the table. Ah! 
And you could say, Moses broke all ten commandments. Yes, he did. He broke all ten. <laughs> but to be fair, God was cheesed too. And a few weeks ago we read that thing where God's like, get out of the way, Moses. I'm cleaning a house. I'll give you a whole new nation of people. He's like, Lord, don't do it. And, well, then Moses was stuck with those whiners the rest of his life. <laughs> anyway... In Deuteronomy 10, what we have is a perfect copy of the originals, which were perfectly preserved in the very presence of God in the ark. You see, in this copy, unlike the first set, man actually played a role. Moses, this time, had to hew out the tables of stone. God did that the first time. Oh, God wrote it, but Moses had his part, and of course God had his part. And you know what those copies were? They were an exact equivalent of the first. God wanted to testify something. Are you tracking with me? God wanted to testify something. Psalms 12, 6, and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. He's not talking about the originals. He's talking about perfectly kept, preserved copies from this generation forever. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. These are inspired, preserved copies in the context every time. So please, please, y'all, do not be so foolish as to think or say or believe that God's word is perfect only in the originals. Don't be so foolish. Even the tablets weren't the originals. And they were placed in the ark. In fact, these tablets of the three items in the ark, quite frankly, is the most important. Say, how do you know that? Because this is the only item that remained in the ark once they entered the promised land and Solomon built the temple and they dedicate the temple, and you remember the ark had the rings and the, and the staves of wood and they was to be carried from place to place. When they set it in the temple and they removed the staves and the ark landed in its final resting place in the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem in the promised land, we read in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 9 that there was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. You see, because once you enter into the promised land of spiritual maturity, well, the manna ceased, right? You're at a point where you can go feed yourself now. And you don't need to fear unnecessary judgment because... You don't make those foolish choices anymore. You're spiritually mature. 
But I don't care who you are and I don't care where you're at on your path of growth. We always need to remember the importance of his written word. Always. Always. Israel over and over again was commanded to keep the commandments, keep the commandments, keep the commandments. And when he says keep the commandments, he means obey the commandments. He doesn't mean keep them protected somewhere on your shelf. A message that some of you may need to learn to apply. He doesn't mean just keep a copy on your shelf and search the house frantically on Sunday because, oh, it's church day. Keep the commandments. Obey the commandments. This testimony was God's admonition to Israel to mind his conduct because the law brings conviction of sin. And that's Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And God needed them and us to always remember that we're sinful. We haven't arrived yet. And ultimately drive us to Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Because the law can't justify us, but your faith in Christ can. Your faith in Christ can. Which brings us to our next major point in our outline, and that's the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, since the ark itself was a picture of God, and since it was the physical manifestation of God's presence on earth, and since it was the only thing that man could stand before and know that he was in the presence of God, well, then the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. The ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the only visible form of an otherwise invisible God. Exodus 33, 20. Thou canst not see my face, for thou shall no man see me and live, God said. You can't see God. Why? Because John 4, 24, God's a spirit. You can't see God the Father, and you can't see God the Spirit. But you could see God the Son. You could see him if you were alive 2,000 years ago when he was here. That ark only had two components. It only had two materials. It had wood, and it had gold. And those represent the two natures of Jesus Christ, his humanity and his deity. You see, that ark is a picture of the mystery of godliness. God, deity, was manifest in the flesh, humanity. The ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. But is it possible? Is it possible that the three items which were in the ark, God's testimony to Israel in the wilderness, could also hold a more specific, personal meaning for us today? I mean, what about Jesus' testimony? 
You ever think about Jesus' testimony? Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that's called Patmos. Why? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. For the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus, here it is, is the spirit of prophecy. You see that thing? The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to see how each of those three items in the ark also prophetically point to the person of Jesus Christ. The first one, very obvious, I think all of them are fairly obvious. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Amen? He's the resurrection and the life. We get that from John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, his friend, Lazarus, who dies. And Jesus shows up after he's already passed away and his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they're weeping and mourning the loss and, and they run and they meet Jesus. And we'll pick it up in verse number 21 of John 11 where it said, Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Why'd you get here late if you'd only been here on time? She goes on and says, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, Listen, you're not quite getting this, Martha. Let me help you out. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? You see, Jesus is always going to turn it back. He's going to make a complete, bold, clear, definitive declaration. But it doesn't really matter to you unless you believe it. Believest thou this? Pick it up in verse number 43. When he calls Lazarus to come out, he says, And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he, noticed that was dead, came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Turn him loose. <laughs> loose him. Let him go. So he spoke the word, and the dead came alive. He is the resurrection and the life. Listen, y'all, that's Aaron's rod. That's what It's a dead stick. Twelve dead branches. Twelve men, one each carved his name into a stick. They took twelve dead sticks into the tabernacle, laid them before the ark, went to bed, got up in the morning, one stick had grown buds and blossoms and flowers and blooms and almonds. Jesus Christ brings life from death. That's what he does. That's what he does. 
But Aaron's rod, not only is Jesus Christ, because he came back from the dead, it, it's you. Remember John 15 and 5? I'm the vine, ye are the branches, you're the branch. You got no life in you, though. It's his life. He can do anything. He's God, but man, he bring life from your dead stick. He was killed himself and came back to life. You remember that story of man's human history? That in the very beginning, Genesis 1.26, God made man in his very image. And he placed him in the garden with only one rule. There's one tree. I don't want you to eat of it. So in Genesis 2.17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. When are you going to die? In the very day that you eat of it. So man sins, they eat of the tree, but they didn't die physically. They died spiritually, and they lost God's image, and we know that because as the generations of man continue in Genesis 5, the book of the generations of Adam, right, in the day that God created man, in other words, Adam, in the likeness of God made he him, Adam. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own image, not in God's image, after his likeness and his own likeness and image, called his name Seth. Now, generation after generation after generation, we all are in the same dead spiritual state as all of Adam's children. Romans 5.12, you know it. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That's why at your salvation, your testimony looks like Ephesians 2.1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus Christ is Aaron's rod. He is the resurrection. He brings life from death. A beautiful, prophetic picture because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Letter B, Jesus is the bread of life. He's the bread of life, pictured by the pot of manna, God's bread from heaven. The story comes from John chapter 6. The backstory leading up to what we're going to read in John chapter 6, verses 5 to 14, deal with God miraculously feeding the multitude. There's multitudes of people, and they're following Jesus, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, and they got nothing to eat, and Jesus takes the the five loaves and the two fishes, and he prays over them, and he feeds everybody, right? The miracle. People are amazed. They take Jesus for a, for a prophet. But yet still, even with that miracle, they don't quite get it. Their faith is not really perfect, and so Jesus addresses the situation in verse 26, and Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. So he's going to take that event and turn it into lesson time, which is what Jesus always did. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat, that meat, which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. 
Now let's go down to verse number 31. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. There's your connection. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the, notice, true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is not that, it's he, it's a person. The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Could it be any clearer? He that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Jesus Christ, that bread gives life. That bread gives life, amen? And it's not just temporary, physical sustenance, day by day in the wilderness it rains down bread to eat. It's eternal, spiritual, everlasting life which leads to an awkward discussion further down in John chapter 6 as the narrative continues in verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which cometh down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So the Jews of that time walking around with Jesus, they're freaking out. And they're like, oh, you know, I, I thought I sort of was tracking, but I'm not so sure. I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of in the slow class. Back it up a little. Eating Jesus flesh. Not so sure about that one, Lord. That's, that's a hard saying, right? So they're not sure exactly how it's going, and you read the story on your own, but Jesus clarifies it all in verse 63. It's the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. Here it is, y'all. The words, the words, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. It's spiritual. It's not literal. Don't bless the wafer and think it turns into the literal body of Jesus Christ that you literally eat every Sunday at the Mass. No. It's spiritual. It's the words. You have to believe them. So when it says in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. What does he mean? Well, he goes on and clarifies. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Tasting is trusting. That's what he's saying. And that pot of manna, that is Jesus Christ. Because the spirit of prophecy, right? That's the testimony of Jesus. All right, Jesus is, letter C. Oh, you knew this was coming. The word of life. Jesus is the word of life, the tables of the covenant. 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. That same John wrote the gospel starting off at the first chapter in the first verse. In the beginning, that which was from the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everybody knows you're supposed to jump down to verse 14, right? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So Jesus Christ clearly is, I don't need to tell you guys this, you know this, the eternal living Word of God. That's who He is. Eternally existing as such since eternity past, since before Genesis 1-1, since before the creation. The eternal Word of God. Manifest to the world about 2,000 years ago in the form of a man when He took on flesh. He is the word of life because the word brings life. This is a very simple outline today. The word brings life. And I'm not going to belabor this point because the truth of the matter is if you come to First Baptist Church regularly, we belabor this point a lot. But can I just remind you of a couple of places as clear I mean, as clear as that crystal spring that will flow from the temple in eternity. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Similarly, James 1.21, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness, the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. It's able to save your souls. Now, are they talking about Jesus Christ? Are they talking about the written word? Are they, are they talking about the scriptures, the written? Or are they talking about the living word? Um, yes would be the correct answer. Yes would be the correct answer. And listen, y'all, it's because of this. You can't separate the two. You can't, listen, you can't separate the two. The similarities between the written Word of God and the living Word of God are so strong, you can't possibly separate them. That's why that's why God always wants you to remember the value that he places on his written word. It's a, if you will, paper representation of Jesus Christ himself. This book literally is the manifestation of the very soul of God. The only thing that remained in the ark permanently were the tablets the Word of God, the ark, was the only physical entity that was available on planet Earth that represented the very presence, the very being of God Himself. And the ark is lost. The raiders tried to find it. They couldn't find it. It's gone. But we have a book. And you know what this thing is? It's the only physical entity on planet Earth that literally represents the very presence and the very being of God Almighty today. Can I just caution you as your friend, the attitude that you take toward this book while you profess to love God? Because the Lord sees it like 
So the longest chapter in your Bible, we talked Psalm 119, is all about David's love for God's word. His love for God's word. I have more understanding than all my teachers because your testimonies are my delight. The word gives life. It gives life. God's testifying some things. And his very reputation stands on what he's testifying to us. Have you heard him? Have you heard him today? Do you recognize that God is in charge? Do you submit truly? I mean, you can say it. Do you submit to his sovereignty? Have you submitted to his sovereignty to the level that you have stopped complaining? Oh, man. I was doing good till that question. (laughs) Have you experienced God's gracious supply of all your need? Of course you have. Every day, do you recognize... Do you recognize that he will finish the work that he began in you? Do you recognize that? There's no need to worry about that stuff. And and do you value the written word of God? Do, Do you really value the gift? Do you value it enough to actually read it? Actually pray over it? actually take time in your regular schedule to sit down and clear away the distractions and study it, to submit to the system of discipleship and training and all the different things that we offer so that you can know God through the revelation of his word. Is that a reality or is that just, uh, you know, those fanatical Christians do that? Okay, well, Good luck with that at the judgment seat. This is God's testimony to you. And he cares about it. He cares about it. Let me just ask this last question and we're done. Have you personally experienced God's testimony about Jesus Christ in your life? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you put your trust in him and him alone for eternal life? Do you have new spiritual life in Jesus Christ? Because, friend, if you do not yet know that you do, this is your lucky day. This offer is extended to you, and you can respond to it right now. So let's go to the Lord and let's pray.